You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Prosperity in Black America. What will this require? Is Black business prospering? Are we reaching women and minority-owned businesses? How do we achieve earning parity for wealth for our families? I'm that provocateur of change. I am Cindy Bright. Welcome to Heartbeat. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Heartbeat this evening. I am your host, Cindy Bright. Tonight, we have a different kind of show tonight because we have a large slate of people who have come onto the show with me tonight to discuss Senate Bill 5536. I'm going to read some notes, which I don't normally do, but I want to read some things to you to help me um, set the context for the conversation tonight and then introduce in. We have both the community and the legislature here tonight to talk about a vote that happened yesterday in special session uh, for the Washington State Legislature. Now, for those who follow, House Bill 50, excuse me, Senate Bill 5536 is a special bill that got voted on yesterday about the Blake, Blake versus um, Washington State. Blake bill is a bill about drug possession and whether drug possession was going to be classified as a gross misdemeanor or not. This is a complex issue. I've spent a lot of time researching it, reading about it. And yesterday we had a vote in the legislature that voted to make drug possession a gross misdemeanor. Now, the complexity around this issue is because I mean, these are my words, but I think no one really wants drugs in the street, but it isn't as simple as that. And we all know that people who are impacted by, you know, police and criminality and drugs is brown and black communities. And so how do we deal with that? What are the implications of the vote yesterday? Why did the legislature vote the way that they did? What is the community feeling today after this vote yesterday? So we're going to start with, uh, let me tell you who all is here with me tonight um, as I try to navigate this conversation because we do have a lot of perspective about this. But from the community perspective, who I have here in the studio with me, many of you know him, Deontay Damper is here with me uh, this evening. Deontay, welcome here to have this conversation with me. Um, on screen with me tonight, we also have um, former uh, candidate here in the 37th District, Imaja Smith. We have Malika Lamont. She is a community member. We have Allison Holcomb from the ACLU. We have Shavana Gaylor, community member. We have from the Washington State Legislature. We have Senator Saldana of the 37th District. We have Senator Moncadingra of the 45th District. We have Senator Patty Cooter of the 48th District. And we have Representative Jamila Taylor from the 30th District. So that's a lot of people we have on tonight to have this discussion. Um, and I want to start by hearing the community response to what happened yesterday. I thought that would be a good place to start tonight with Deontay here on reactions to the vote to pass this as a gross misdemeanor. And then I will hear some more from some of our other community members and then we'll get our elected officials who voted on this issue to help bring their perspective to what 
what is happening, why they voted the way they did, and then maybe talk about what is next for our community in terms of protecting it. So Deontay, let me welcome you in. Deontay, you. Deontay asked me before the show, are you, are you sure you want me to be first? And sure I said, yes, I, I do. I want to give this space out to <laughs> yes. other folks. Uh, yes, I, I do. And I know you have perspective and I know how the community is feeling about it. So let's start with you to hear what's your reaction. My reaction is honestly, I'm pissed. You know, at the end of the day, when we are talking about our community members that are impacted, one of the, the speakers in the house said it best. We know that this is going to impact black and brown community members the most. Um, not, and, 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 and it's not just not that. I just think it's just a, it's not just a war on war on drugs tactics. It's also impacting our community members that are houseless, um, that are in poverty. Um, and at the end of the day, um, when it really comes down to it, this is just another another round for them to put us back in that pipeline that they've spoken so well of of trying to break. It broke my heart to hear speakers. It, I, I'm calling out names. It broke my heart to hear speakers like T Tara Simmons speak. As much advocacy that I've seen her do um, in community, especially in black and brown communities, to pretty much say say to community like, oh, well, this is going to, accountability is good for y'all. When we are talking about recovery in our community, it is not forced treatment, especially in spaces when we're talking about King County Jail. We've already seen community members pass away into that space due to circumstances of, of not having enough equitable treatment in that space to begin with. And Representative Tara Simmons. Representative Tara, Tara Simmons. Simmons. Shout out, girl. Yeah, I called you out. We can talk about it later. But that was, it was foul. And is my, am I incorrect? Is she a formerly incarcerated person? Yes. And so she, as a formerly incarcerated, now representative, voted against the interest of the brown and black community. Yes, in, in my opinion, um, in, in that space. And, and I think that other community members will say that, too. It, it broke my heart to see uh, actually everyone who voted yes. I was surprised. I just don't think that people really see like how this is going to impact us. I think that a lot of community members that are in leadership out there in the House and the Senate are very unfamiliar with navigating community members that, that may use substances, um, that use substances in that space. And I don't think that people really, some, some not all, don't really have the know-how on how to navigate that space and pretty much just said, you know what? Well, I'm tired of seeing it on my street too. Um, let's bring in, I want to bring in some of the other community members. So let's, let's welcome in, in uh, Malika Lamont. Let's bring her on. Let's bring on Allison Holcomb from the ACLU. Let's bring on Shavana Gaylor. I'm, I'm going slowly. Uh, everyone, because I can't see you except up on the larger screen, so it's like a 30-second pause. Uh, forgiveness for that. Uh, Malika, let's hear from you first. Hi. First off, thank you all for joining us tonight remotely. Now I can see all of you. How are you all this evening? Great. Wonderful. Thanks. Good. Good. Malika, let's start with you. I just want to hear your reaction with what uh, Deontay is speaking about. Um, I'd like to hear all of your perspectives about your reaction to the vote yesterday. Um, I share, um, I sh I'm hurt. I'm hurt by um, the policy choices that our electeds made. Um, I am frustrated 
as a person that was a part of the um, SIRSAC committee that was put together as part of the original Blake um, fix, fix, quote unquote, um, that asked to have experts from diverse fields come up with solutions and recommendations. And a lot of those recommendations were completely ignored. Um, and as a person who works in the policy space um, through Boca Washington, um, it was hurtful to literally hear um, representative, um, elected representatives say to us that they didn't care about science when we tried to talk to them about how forced treatment doesn't work and it's not an evidence-based approach um, and that incarceration um, is actually more harmful and that there's and that harm reduction is one of the um, only evidence-based approaches to um, addressing substance use disorder and it is the most studied and to have folks like directly um, representative Eslick um, said that she didn't care about the science when one of our members was um, trying to speak to her about um, the concerns we had around section um, eight of the bill that negated the protections for harm reduction workers in section seven. Um, the second part of section eight um, removed protections for people that are doing um, work that actually engages people in the cycle of behavior change and moves them towards recovery. Um, those are now able, those activities and those workers are now able to be targeted um, by local law enforcement. We have already seen uh, this morning, I already heard an example of that happening in a community in Washington state that has many established harm reduction interventions for people that are experiencing um, substance use disorder and local municipal law enforcement threatened that if these workers were to move forward with a state-funded program and um, a person overdosed that was using that service, that the workers could face felony charges um, and that they would be pursued. And now the organization that was thinking about starting this uh, program is having pause. And I also am concerned that, you know, increasing the criminal penalty, that's what happened with this bill, is the criminal penalty increased um, for people found in simple possession will actually make it harder for people to access the care and support that they need. We do not have meaningful access to treatment in any jail across the whole entire state. Not to mention that Washington state is number four nationally for the number of in um, incarcerated deaths. So people that are experiencing incarceration dying. And that's probably an undercount um, because we know that oftentimes people start dying while they're incarcerated and then they end up passing away at the hospital. So it's not always counted as a in custody death. Um, and that's going to increase. And we also know that when people are um, incarcerated and they're experiencing opioid use disorder that um, when they exit, they're at least 16 times more likely to die of an overdose. And the fact that these decisions to, you know, move these policies forward happened, even though King County's own data demonstrates that um, in one year, black people 
went from being two to three times more likely to die of an overdose to four to five times more likely to die of an overdose. And indigenous people went from four times more likely to die of an overdose to nine times more likely to die of an overdose. In one so Malika, when you when you talk, excuse me for interrupting. Uh, I, I didn't mean to. I just want to make sure uh, we get some perspective in here. So um, when you talk about the penalty increase, it looks like uh, now it has increased to uh, the maximum is 180 days of incarceration for the first two convictions and then um, up to 364 days for the third conviction. I want to bring in uh, Senator Rebecca Saldana and Representative Jamila Taylor at this moment just to speak to uh, what Malika is talking about in terms of um, the impact on brown and black communities. And Senator Saldana and Representative Taylor, can you give or frame up a perspective for us on the conversation that was occurring in the legislature and how we got to the place where we are uh, tonight with the vote? Sure. Uh, I mean, the Senate was the problem. Um, in large part, I mean, we had at the beginning of the session a piece of legislation rooted in the um, policy recommendations that came from the group that had been meeting for the last two years since the Blake decision first came and um, the legislature took action to recriminalize it at that time just putting knowing and gave it a sunset of two years. So we had that sunset of two years, you know, we had with the hope that we were gonna move people um, to be able to have a different policy. So we had a, a bill introduced by Senator Dingra on the, on the Senate side that would have included decriminalization and really was more grounded in, in those policies that are based in science and based in data. And then we had other, poli you know, other legislation before us um, that had many different, not based in data, but, you know, of, you know, misdemeanor, gross misdemeanor, um, you know, amendments trying to bring it back to a felony. And so that, you know, was a piece of legislation that those were the thing, and that was the one that had the votes. You know, there was um, a group of us that were organizing on the inside, you know, in the Senate side, definitely on the House side, in terms of, you know, trying to get a policy that was going to reduce harm as much as possible. That's always been our goal. And recognizing that I live in South Seattle, I live in King County and I represent, and I'm honored to represent um, that district. But as a, an Im a daughter of immigrants, as uh, a person that grew up, um, you know, where families could only get care once their kid was incarcerated. And once they were incarcerated, then they were said that they, they they weren't worthy of care. And this has been something that, you know, we, many of us are feeling compelled in, you know, that we're here to do that work. So all to say at the very last day, what we had before us was something that was worse than what we had before us yesterday. And um, and so the, those were the places, but, you know, and, and the house, you know, took the risk of killing that bill uh, with, and, and we were all fearful that we were end up having to come be forced to come back and have something even worse um, and so I think the piece that I was just saying is is that you know there are people and there are places and I think Malika spoke to this right um, where 
they were already moving to uh, local jurisdictions were moving to pass legislation uh, that would have further criminalized um, harm reduction um, care that um, so many folks are, are trying to push and what we know is, is the right way to go. Um, but when I got there, and I'll just say this will be my last thing, when I arrived in the Senate seven years ago, I was in the minority. Um, and I was the only woman of color in the Senate. And um, I remember the conversations that were being had. Like we couldn't even get any support um, to have a harm reduction approach at all, even as a pilot, even allowing locals to do it. Um, it was, you know, they were criminalizing children um, who were trying to flee unsafe homes. And so, I mean, I do think that it's important to recognize uh, that we have changed the dynamic, but the opposition and the hardliners are very much still controlling a lot of what happens in the legislature. And uh, yeah, and so I think that's the dynamic that I saw a lot of my colleagues um, having to deal with. So I um, was in a position to vote no, but I was also, as someone that has been there now for seven years, with some of my um, let you know my newer members of color that are there are you know i'm also counseling them to you know figure out you know what where they are um and how do we make sure that we're trying to not have things go backwards as much as we can while we're trying to push and push to change the way things are um you know every fight you know, that we move and we move, you know, they're trying to push us back. And so I think that's just the kind of context that I'd give. Um, Representative Taylor um, was, you know, in rooms um, and that are usually not allowed, that we're, we're not usually allowed. And, um, and so I think there was, you know, a kind of inside outside work in terms of who was the negotiating team and those of us then trying to have that inside outside conversation with the people with lived experience with people that are are doing the work um and and so i think that's that's what i'll say because i probably talked too long <laughs> thank you so much um uh, senator saldana uh, we'll go to um Representative Taylor. Um, yes, so, yes. Representative Taylor, what were your thoughts throughout the process of yesterday? It was incredibly frustrating, this entire process of getting to a negotiated deal. Um, when we would have agreements by the Republicans, they would withdraw or they would add things to the table that we um, had already had agreement on. Um, I would say that at the end of the day, when, when the Republicans on the House side who were not engaging until after session was over and they have new leadership and uh, Drew Stokesbury, um, they, it was incredibly frustrating to get anything done. And so we didn't have the votes on the House Democrat side for the, the negotiated deal prior to the original session. But what I'll say is that as a person who is in the negotiating room, the only black person in the negotiating room, um, recognizing that we're you know, facing a need for a bipartisan bill, that meant the Senate needed bipartisan votes, the House obviously needed bipartisan votes to get it out, um, and it failed. It failed on that night, last night. So what I will say is that I fought to make sure that we kept out mandatory minimums that came over to us from the Senate. Mandatory minimums, which did not exist when it was a felony. You know, in the first three to four instances of a conviction on a felony level for possession, you, you would have zero to six months. So we kept out mandatory minimums. 
we wanted to make sure that um, we didn't have hodgepodge a patchwork of um, uh, local jurisdictions and their ordinances um, in this, this space. Um, so decriminalization or taking no action at the state level does not mean decriminalization statewide. So that's where the cities were starting to enact their own possession laws and their own public use laws. Yeah, some of them were, um, they were, uh, I would say misdemeanors, but some of them were gross misdemeanors and they were from communities where they will give you the maximum sentences. We also were able to ensure that we protected folks who were giving paraphernalia. So like, what we didn't have prior to this, this statute is that um, protections around paraphernalia. Like right now, prior to today, local jurisdictions could have enacted their own um, rules around paraphernalia, which meant that they didn't have to test the drugs. They could just say, here's a crack pipe and you shall be convicted of this possession of paraphernalia. So there were a lot of things that we were trying to do in terms of harm mitigation, the fact that we didn't have control of the vote. Um, what we have new in this particular piece of legislation is a vacate process that is not wholly dependent on a person who's convicted to bring a motion in, in collaboration with the prosecutor. So the person can submit their own materials, uh, a, a completion of services, and then a court on its own order without having to give notice to the prosecutor can enter a vacate earlier than the two to three years that it takes to vacate a, a thing. Um, and then of course, at, at the end of the day, it's really about the no wrong door approach and making sure that we put money on the table for housing vouchers, um, making sure that folks had recovery supports, wraparound services, making sure that we had services for youth specifically. Public defense, there was no money for public defense in the first iteration of, of, of this bill and making sure that we had due process incorporated. You, If you are understanding of like the process around revocation of um, uh, probation and other diversion pro processes, um, there isn't a specifically identified um, due process issue in some, in some courts they were revoking probation without a court hearing or formal recording of the court hearing without an order. And so how would you know what to comply with after that hearing? So I would say that folks may be upset that we have a, another criminal sanction. We did not decriminalize, but I, my understanding is that the ACLU is interested in bringing um, an initiative where the citizens of our state can vote on this issue directly and make their voices heard. And we can get decriminalization that way, but we just didn't have a pathway for decriminalization in the legislature at this moment, at this time, but we put money on the table to make sure that folks have resources and access to 988 or to co-responders or crisis stabilization centers, testing strips, all kinds of harm reduction um, uh, processes and, 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 um, and opportunities that didn't exist before. And again, I know folks are very disappointed by having this bill, uh, however, we need to stay at the table and we need to really build out our harm reduction policy and ensure that the, the workforce that's going into the fire, into the fire to help folks who have substance use disorder, especially our unhoused brothers and sisters, unhoused brothers and sisters, folks 
who have are casted out of our our communities in many many ways have ways to engage with folks without harm of being criminalized for doing the thing that we need them to do which is outreach and engagement with folks who do not trust our system like a lot of folks don't trust our system and this is not going to help them on the day-to-day -day build that trust without the resources and supports that they need Thank you, Representative Taylor. We appreciate your perspective. I want to bring in uh, community members. I want to bring in our guests from the ACLU. And I also want to bring in uh, Imaja Smith, who is a former candidate for office, uh, to hear a response from the community about what Representative Jamil Taylor just explained. Should I start first? Or sure. Okay. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. I just want to share um my congratulations to and for the hard work paula sardinas did a great job just saying that it takes a lot of work to try to move this very challenging um conversation i appreciate rep taylor thinking about the nuances and other folks who have legal backgrounds about how you have to navigate a system if, if it is a vacator going through that system i want to highlight from what i've learned as a person in my community impacted by the war on drugs the crack epidemic and the harm that is caused to families. So the gross misdemeanor um, is hard for me to swallow because although we're trying to get an individual um, treatment, right? Because I don't want to see people falling through the cracks or funnel falling through the cracks and funnel through a system that's just creating more harm. There's a huge impact on families. So I know this is a tricky piece and tricky system. It's like, you know, if you go through the system, can you go back to vacate? So I appreciate there being op opportunities to vacate without having to do a motion. A lot of people don't even understand that process. My biggest thing is I shared with, with Deontay is shared how the impact and how these systems already dehumanize and do not see the humanity in black, indigenous and brown folks impacted by these laws. So I'm concerned about the family breakdown of this. I, I'm happy that it's not worse than what it was. I do recall when this Blake came down, people were thinking of getting people felony convictions when they were thinking about criminalizing. So we've made, we've made some progress, but until we really can wrap our minds around really understanding how this moves through and breaks down a family and how the systems are not, they're so under-resourced, but they're so steeped in racism and, 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 and anti-black racism in particular, that the disproportionality and inequities that are going to occur, I just don't want to see us continue to be thrown away. When the Blake decision came down, I thought this was an opportunity to repair harms, but it's looking like we're going backwards um, if we do not address the systems that are really at play. And we have to be willing to see the humanity in our black and brown and indigenous folks who are hugely impacted. Because the fact that there are treatment centers and all the things that we where we're at right now, I don't believe that that was intended for us, but because other populations are being affected, now these opportunities are coming, but more need to happen. Because again, people, our families, our siblings, our community members are dying in jails. They're dying just trying to get service. They're being ignored and they're actually funneled back out. And the DOC Department of Corrections and the jails are not resourced enough to really um, do the healing that is needed and then community being ripped apart, you know, it's just more burden on the community. So those are my thoughts. And while I say all of that, I also say I appreciate 
how folks have shown up to try to do something because there are a host of people who do who could care less. They just want to criminalize and throw away the key. So those are my thoughts. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Cindy and Deontay, for yeah. hosting this platform for this conversation. Yeah, we appreciate you and the community and our legislators coming on to talk about it. We cannot progress this society without all of us collectively working together to figure out what are our next steps. I'm going to take a quick commercial break and then I'll be at, be back and pick up with the ACLU because I'd like to hear their response to it as well. So we'll be right back. COVID-19 are my income, my health, and my family. We were about to lose our home when we heard we might be eligible for homeowner assistance funds from the government. We called 1-877-894-HOME and a housing counselor stepped in. They talked to our lender and saved our home because falling on hard times does not have to mean losing your home. Federal funding details at WashingtonHAF.org. Welcome back to Heartbeat. I am your host, Cindy Bright. This evening, we're having a discussion. I have Deontay Damper from the community here in the studio with me because we're having a conversation about the Blake vote that occurred yesterday with the Washington State Legislature. If you tuned into the first half, you heard uh, this is an emotional bill. This is an emotional vote. Uh, the impact of this vote to brown and black community is pivotal. And so the community is talking about it. And we are also hearing from our elected officials about uh, the position that they are in, they were in to cast a vote and how we're going to be dealing with this issue going forward. And so right before the break, I was trying to call in Deontay, come in with me here for a second. We were trying to get some of the ACLU yeah. folks on and I know I have a, too many people on one show, yeah. so I'm trying to get to everybody tonight. Were you yeah. going to comment oh, as yeah, well? Absolutely. Like, you know, at the end of the day, it's just it's super important to have these conversations. And I appreciate just the platform and hearing everyone. Because as you heard me open, mm -hmm. like, I am still frustrated. Mm -hmm. I am mad. I am I'm mad because I know what's coming next. My community members are hurt. Mm -hmm. um, and we still, we, we still need answers. Mm -hmm. And although we might have these conversations of divide we still have to continue to try to find a solution to this i would call it a mess but at the same time to, to this space and i respect everyone's opinion in this space and you said you had somebody next yeah uh, before we get there yeah. you know what i you know what i will comment is that you know what i'm going to find interesting is because we all know you know we are black people sitting here talking Absolutely. and so we understand the implications of decisions like this um and even though um, well, I would say, you know, when you walk down the streets of Seattle right now, it's not brown and black people that I see laying out in the streets. Right. It's a lot of white people strung out and drugged out. And so it does beg the question about, you know, what are the mayors saying or what are the mayors going to do in these different cities now that this bill um, has passed. How are they going to deal with this? And, you know, I, we have some guests here tonight that I think might be able to help shed a little bit of light on this. Before we invite in our other two senators, I do want uh, th those who are here from the ACLU to come in. They That's the American Civil Liberties Union. So I want to make sure we give uh, their voice on record here. Let's bring them in so we yes. can hear them as well. Allison Holcomb. Allison Holcomb. Yes. 
Allison, are you still on with us? I am. Thank you so much, Cindy and Deontay, for having me tonight. It's an honor, um, and I really appreciate the conversation up to this point as well. The ACLU has made ending the war on drugs a core plank for the organization for decades because, as you've, you and our community members have correctly um, described, the war on drugs has always been rooted in racism from the very first laws making drug use a crime. It wasn't always a crime. It used to be a medical issue. But the very first laws passed making it a crime were those against uh, Chinese immigrants smoking opium at the same time that dissolving opium and alcohol to make laudanum could still be enjoyed by white Victorian ladies. Cannabis was called marijuana so that we could criminalize um, people who were immigrating to the United States from Mexico. And cocaine was sold as the drug that makes the black man uppity. Um, that's the history of it. And we know today, as recently as 2021, black drug users in the state of Washington are twice as likely to be arrested and charged with crimes as white drug users and indigenous drug users three times as likely. I wanted to quickly address some of the remarks that I've heard. Um, especially as, with respect to harm reduction. I want to make sure that people hear what Malika Levant said. There was something very important she said. Law enforcement officers are already telling harm reduction workers in the field that they will be arrested and charged with controlled substances homicide if they are given drugs to test for fentanyl, which is something that the bill says we want to protect, and then they give those drugs back to the person with information about what they found in the test and the person subsequently overdoses and dies. There is nothing in this bill that protects those workers from criminal charges for either controlled substances homicide or delivery. There are very specific protections that are outlined, but they're limited essentially to possession, the possession while you're testing the drug. You have to give the drug back to the individual if you're just testing it for their personal use, that's not protected. There's similarly another provision in the bill that says that yes, we do want the state to preempt the entire field of regulating paraphernalia. And yet that very same section says, this doesn't prevent any local jurisdiction from adopting laws that regulate the establishment or operation of a harm reduction program. And Representative Roger Goodman has already gone on record saying, yes, that's exactly what it does. It allows every city and county in the state of Washington to outlaw any harm reduction program within their jurisdiction. We heard floor speeches that were very moving from Representative Lauren Davis, the only elected representative to talk about the racial disparities that are going to return once we start criminalizing people for drug use once again was Rep Representative Jerry Pollitt from the 46th. So I just want to thank him for going on record and reminding everybody that these are, these are the results that we're going to see. Nothing was said about the fact that the Office of Financial Management's fiscal note for this bill estimates 12,000 new cases will be filed in district and municipal courts every year. The uh, administrative office for the courts estimated this will come at a price tag of $46.3 million just for the court costs. It wasn't even estimated how much it's going to cost for the jail beds for everybody who's booked when they're arrested, who has uh, pretrial detention ordered, who goes into a diversion program but is violated because they relapse and have a dirty urinalysis test, or who is simply sentenced for one of these penalties. And the penalties that we're talking about, yes, it's a gross misdemeanor versus a felony, 
but the sentences that are allowed are the same as the felony before. Before Blake, zero to six months for the first two offenses was the standard range, and six months is 180 days, exactly what the legislature just passed. There are people who are also going to be facing the reality that we live in a society today where information about cases getting filed is available through commercial databases that pull this data up and share it with employers, uh, with landlords, et cetera. So whether it's a felony or a gross misdemeanor, it's still a court record that accuses you of being a person who uses drugs. And these records are going to disproportionately harm brown and black communities in Washington state. So thank you again so much for having me on. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Allison. Love, love me some Allison. <laughs> Darren says, I love me some Allison. Yeah, thank you, Allison, for your- We got some senators on here. On here. We do. I, I would like to um, invite in uh, Senator Monka Dingra. She is in the 45th district. Uh, she is also uh, declared an exploratory for the attorney general. So I'll be really interested to hear what she has to say. I also want to hear uh, Senator Patty Cooter. She was actually on with me last week talking a little bit about this, but I'd love to hear uh, both Senator Dingra and Senator Cooter's perspective about this issue. Thank you so much, Cindy, for having me. And thank you to everyone who's been uh, participating in this. You know, when the Blake decision first came down from a state Supreme Court, I was actually um, on the floor talking about um, a, a bill. And I remember thinking, this is such a great opportunity for us to use evidence-based practice to try to do something meaningful. And so at that point in time, I had actually introduced a bill that um, really was taking a look at what personal possession looks like and really ensuring that we have a uh, treatment modality for that. It was a rude awakening for me when my own bill did not um, get the support that uh, I thought I would get because I really did see this as an opportunity for us to um, really rectify what we had been doing in our community. I think it was the first time where um, someone in the legislature ended up voting no on a bill that had their name on it because an amendment was put on that bill, which I couldn't support. And so uh, when that bill went to the House, came back again, it was a bill that I um, did not think would be workable. And so there was a there was an expiration date put on it. That bill expired July of this year. But what that bill also did was create a committee where individuals with lived experience, um, individuals who are who work in this arena um, can come together and really develop recommendations and best practices. And I do want to thank everyone who served on the SURSAC committee. I've done so many task forces in my life, and that was um, one of the toughest task forces I have served on because I think there were such honest conversations on what this policy means for so many different community members. When it came time to do the bill, I um, introduced a bill that was based on the recommendations of the SURSAC committee. Again, this year, um, there was not the support to really take bold action in addressing per, uh, past harms and moving forward in a way that's evidence-based. And so, um, again, we had a Blake bill on the Senate floor that I voted no on uh, because I simply couldn't do that. And then um, it was, you know, I had to really ask myself, do we need a statewide solution? And 
it was important that we actually have a statewide solution because we kept hearing from cities, different cities, different counties, who were planning on passing laws that were really concerning in terms of drug possession, in terms of possession of paraphernalia. So it was important that we have a statewide policy that is consistent. It was very important to me that I tried to make this policy um, as, as least harmful as I could because I knew people wanted to do everything from going back for, uh, for drug possession to be a felony onwards. And so um, I do think we got a bill that was the least harmful we could pass. And it's unfortunate that that is the terms in which we have to talk about. But I know many people have heard me say this before, in order for a law to pass, you've got to get the 25 votes in the, in the Senate, 50 in the House, and the governor to sign it. And as part of that negotiation, I'll say the reason why I finally ended up voting for this bill was because of the infrastructure it sets out and the resources it sets out with recovery homes, with uh, treatment centers, with housing, with, um, uh, with diversion programs. And so, you know, I think all of us will be watching the implementation of this bill very closely. And I think there are many of us who will continue to work in this arena and really ensure that we are taking a public health approach to uh, substance use disorder in our state. Thank you, Senator Dingra. Senator Kudur, did you have some remarks you wanted to make as well? Uh, just real briefly, thank you, Cindy. So I wanna start just by thanking Senator Dingra and Representative Taylor who were on the uh, committee that, that negotiated this. It was a very difficult, um, bill to negotiate. And I will say, I was on your show um, earlier previously, and, and we talked about this, and I told you at the time that, you know, if, if the bill came back more harsh, I was going to be a hard no. Um, and the the reality is, it wasn't. It was, it was actually better. Now, that's a relative term, because I happen to agree with what I heard on, you know, from, from the community members about this. We all wanted to see us move in the direction that the data and the research was, was telling us to go, but we just didn't have the votes to get there. So this was a situation where it was, we're going to do the best we can with the understanding that we're going to be monitoring it. As Senator Dinger said, we're gonna be watching this implementation very closely. Uh, we want to make sure that we have the data and if we're not seeing what we want to see, um, I, as I said on the Senate floor, I hope we have the courage to come back and change it because there will be efforts uh, to change it. I can guarantee you that. Um, I can tell you too that for me, uh, capping the gross misdemeanor at 180 days, which made it um, better than if it had been a straight uh, gross misdemeanor, uh, was helpful in moving me uh, to a yes from a no. I was a no on the bill as it left the Senate the first time. The fact that there is mandatory vacation of the conviction um, upon successful um, completion of treatment was really important to me because I didn't want to have someone have to go in and do extra work in order to get the conviction vacated. But most importantly is the data collection to make sure that we can see how the implementation is playing out and where we need to make the tweaks. So just know that it was a very difficult decision for all of us, it was not, um, it was, it was one of the most challenging decisions I've had to make as a legislator. Um, I'm grateful that working together with other progressives, we, we did send a letter to leadership and they listened and, and some of what we wanted 
was put into uh, the compromise bill. So while it's not perfect, and it's not, the alternative would have been an absolute disaster uh, to have this patchwork approach to whether it's a gross misdemeanor or a misdemeanor or whatever it is, and, and with the, the paraphernalia, et cetera, it would have been an absolute disaster. And that is what moved us uh, to pass the bill. And thanks again for letting me be on the show. No, thank no, you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I do want to ask uh, Senator Dingra a question. Um, I know that it was uh, announced uh, earlier this week that you are running, uh, you're running for a newer position. Um, uh, I can't, what's the Attorney General. Attorney General. Sorry, it just uh, left, left my mind. But I just would like to know as Attorney General, what are some of the things that, because one of the things that I, I'm, I prioritize in my everyday life is, is black and brown community members, indigenous community members in my space. Because in, in situations like this, um, we are impacted. As Attorney General, what are some of the things that you will do to make sure that certain situations like this where indigenous and black people will not be impacted? Thank you so much um, for asking about that because I, I think that is extremely critical. And that is something I take very seriously. Um, I helped create the first ever uh, in the nation statewide office of equity specifically because I think it is important as a state for us to do not just talk about equity, but to actually take meaningful action. So a lot of the job of the Attorney General is not very well understood by most people. One of the things I'm very excited about for this position is that the Attorney General actually advises agencies on how to implement the laws that the legislature passes. And I do think that, I mean, this is definitely in the weeds, but that is a really critical uh, component. Because what we have seen over time is that a lot of the agencies are very interested in making sure they're, pro they're, they're protecting themselves. And community has different expectations. They expect agencies to show up and do the work to get the right results. We can, we're talking about Department of Children and Youth Services. We're talking about DSHS. We're talking about Department of Corrections. And there are a lot of laws that we as legislators pass with the intent of having positive um, implications. And what ends up happening is those laws aren't implemented in the manner that were intended. And you need someone who is overseeing that piece to ensure that when we say we expect diversions, we actually want the we want that to be implemented. And so I do see a large part of this role is not necessarily the big lawsuits, but doing this implementation work to ensure that the intent is consistent with what is happening on the ground. I cannot tell you how many people over and over again reach out to my offices and other offices because of the manner in which they're being treated by our government agencies. And most of the time, it comes down to how they interpret or how the attorneys who are representing those agencies interpret those laws. So that is very much like a cleanup in the weeds issue. Um, uh, I think there's a huge role for the Attorney General's office to play in gender-based violence. We do know that yeah. uh, black women, indigenous women, women of color um, are victims of trafficking and gender-based violence with, at an extent that others aren't. And we yes. need- Yes, I mean, not to, cut, not to cut you off, uh, uh, Senator Dean Gray, I just wanna make sure that we give people the, um, some more time. I do wanna ask you a question later about uh, the Department of Equity. 
But we do have another guest coming on, Julian Saucier. Yeah. Let me, uh, Senator Dinger, thank you for explaining that. I think it's important for the community to hear uh, what your vision is for uh, stepping into a seat like that should you win it. And I want to emphasize and amplify that we do need, you know, Senator Cooter, you made the comments around, you know, I'm going to paraphrase, but it's kind of the lesser of two evils, uh, which is often what black community is forced to deal with is that do we take the scraps or do we take the more scraps? And so just an important thing that we need to keep in the forefront as we continue to elect people to represent us. Now, we've just got a few minutes left on the show, and I know we had some more community uh, people that wanted to speak. So let me bring in Julian Saucer uh, and um, Megan. Is there a Megan? <laughs> Hello. Julian, are you there? I am there. I'm here. Yes. Okay. What um, thoughts would you like to offer this evening? Uh, a lot of stuff has been covered very well. What I'd like to talk about is kind of the workforce. I get concerned that when uh, people are forced into uh, recovery, that those beds are taken up by people that are not ready for recovery and that people that want to go voluntarily can't go and that's how you're going to uh, create your next uh, homeless uh, person who gets you know whose just life is just disrupted through the justice system and lose the housing or lose um, jobs also i'm the, the law enforcement has such a uh, such a uh loud voice i would say um in setting these in a in, in, in uh setting this agenda for um for our scd program i i find that um like a little unfair um they, they can make make statements and generalize and actually demean people and um you know put people in a group of just like a, a bad group and i i i'm concerned that the one size fits all is going to be a a, a, a big mess. But that's all I'm going to say. For Julian, me. but I, I thank you so much um, for speaking. And now we're going to go to our next speaker. Hi, I'm Megan Perry, and I'm in uh, Spokane, Washington. And I formerly worked with the Bail Project, navigating people um, that we would help to get out of jail into recovery services or whatever it helped to get them to where they needed to be. And the real data is that in Spokane, we have about 2% black um, population, two to 3%, and we were incarcerating them at the rate of 12 to 17%. Then imagine that you, when you enter into jail, um, the first three days that you're in jail, sitting there trying to make bail uh, that you don't have, you're at risk of losing your children, your job, your sobriety, and also your housing. And so, one concern that I have with this bill, the way that it's the legislation has been passed, is that it um, opens the revolving door. And, you know, I don't even think that it's a revolving door for black and brown people. It's just a hole where they get trapped into. And I agree with the comment about accessing services. I'm also a licensed um, substance use disorder professional and navigated people into harm reduction type and medically assisted treatment during COVID. And we saw a large amount of people who kind of did a cha-cha. You first want to engage in services and you try and it doesn't work. So you start again and then you start again. And for me, um, 
what we're doing is telling people that they have to get sober and they have to do it, especially in a way that's, um, you know, created by a system of people who haven't navigated that specific system. Also with some of these things with the possession, um, uh, not having delivery protections or controlled substance by homicide is now like on the table. I can say that during COVID, um, I arrived at a home of an overdose for an 18-year-old black male, and the whole house was covered with children, black and brown kids, who were scared to call the police for help because they were scared to get in trouble for having drugs. And I think that's what we're doing to our community. When we don't stand up and say we can't pass these laws because they do something that's going to help, and, and having money in the legislation doesn't always guarantee that the money is going to go to the black and brown peoples, people that need that the most. It also doesn't guarantee that there's access to um, those who need it. And we appreciate you so much. Yes, Megan, thank you for that input. We do appreciate hearing that. Man, this is... Uh, <clears throat> This is something else, isn't it, Deontay? It like is. just to sit here and talk about and listen to all races of people sitting here all saying the same thing around um, the impact, the impact, the impact. And it's the fight that we have continued to fight, which is how do we protect our communities and how, you know, the options that we have to deal with, to contend with, are always pretty um, dire. And um, what, what are you thinking after hearing all this? Well, when I, I think about it and I heard everyone today and it's great to hear their perspective. But when it when you talk about accountability and it, it talks about locking up people that are impacted, people that are out there with, that may have a disease in the space. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want it. Community doesn't want that. And the other option they had was worse than what they voted. on. Right. And I, and I, and I hear that. Yeah. But anything. When it talks about chaining black and brown folks, because we know that that's what's going to happen, because it really didn't, it wasn't a, it's not a public health crisis um, until white people are impacted. And that's, and at the end of the day, well, what's been going on in our community mem members, especially in areas like Federal Way, um, that don't have, I, had, I don't see any access to care in any spaces out there. We still need to be talking about harm reduction in our community. And, and people and, and community members are still scared to have that conversation, but the solution to it is locking us up. And for me, I'm just not with it. I hear everyone, but I just, I can't, I can't rock with that but it's implemented into law. So the only thing to do right now is just to continue to be actionary in our community. And, and continue uh, to advocate and support uh, folks who are running for elected office positions of power that can help us change this. Uh, we heard several of the senators say that they didn't have the votes. They didn't have the votes to progress this. And so while we still struggle with getting folks into office, getting money behind campaigns, getting the right people to have the power, we continue to have to settle for uh, the um, lesser of two evils when it yeah. comes to law. Yeah, it's it's important. See, and that's why someone asked me earlier today, would you run for something? I couldn't run for nothing yeah. because for me, if it has to come down to my integrity and harming, harming others in that space, I'm willing to fight. I'm willing to cuss out. I'm willing to I, I see senators that tweet. I would tweet, 
this stuff out there to community members so then we can start. But we need people in office. Deontay, yeah, we, right? we do need people in right? office. Like we can't, we can't change. I mean, we're doing our part out here. I mean, this show is a part of and, trying and to help. I'm thankful for that. And trying to help change some of these trajectories, but not... Not a black and white answer. Pardon the pun on that one. <laughs> Look, we're at the hour, and I knew this was going to be a difficult show to navigate with all of our guests. I want to, first off, I want to thank our community members who all reached out. You guys reached out to come onto the show. You reached out wanting to talk and get your voices heard and be heard with our electeds. To our elected officials who came on with us tonight, thank you for coming forward and explaining the position, the conversations, what was happening on the floor floor, you know, the kind of voting that you had to do. And so, you know, my encouragement to our elected officials is keep going. I appreciate hearing that we're going to monitor, continue to monitor this. If we have to have another session, maybe that's possible. So we are paying attention here in black community to see what's going to start to happen with our people. Deontay, thank you for coming on and um, hosting this show with me tonight. I appreciate it. This is what we have to continue to do every week is to continue to have the voices of brown and black people. It's why black media matters. It's why we're here at Converge. So thank you for joining us this evening and we look forward to seeing you all next week. Have a good evening. Converge Media produces culturally relevant content for black and urban audiences. Our coverage is raw, transparent, and objective, praised by community leaders, government officials, and residents. Support Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.